chapter 10 this morning. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do Ecclesiastes 10 and 11, which would put us in a shooting distance of finishing up Ecclesiastes next week. So with that being said, let's do the smart thing and have a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, as always, we're just thankful to be here. I thank you for those that could come and for those that couldn't. Lord, we pray you'd bless them and uh, keep them safe and take care of them. And Lord, just go before the teaching. As always, we pray that you would teach through your spirit and we would just listen, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm actually going to pick up with that last sentence in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 because it's a great bridge into the first verse of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Last uh, verse of Ecclesiastes 9, verse 18, says, But one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. One choice, one decision can destroy everything. I don't know how the exact quote goes, but I've heard it before where it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, but it just takes a moment to destroy that. And I could sit up here and I could list names of public figures, be it in Christianity or in just the world. And as soon as I say the name, first thing you think of is their fall and what happened to them. And that's exactly what this saying right here. One sinner destroys much good, a little folly, verse 1, to one respected for wisdom and honor. And it happens. I mean, think of the Bible. We think of David. We always like to think of David as this great man of God, which he obviously was, wrote a lot of the Psalms. But the truth of the matter is that David's sin with Bathsheba brought down his family and for a time brought down his nation. One little folly. Same thing with Abraham. Abraham with Hagar. One little folly brought down someone respected for wisdom and honor. You know, God is telling us you have to be careful. So often when I'm talking to people, the idea of their witness comes up, their testimony. And to be honest, they don't care. They don't care about their witness. They don't care about their testimony. I'm always like, well, you know, how does, that, how does that look for the Lord? How does that witness look for the Lord? What does that make your testimony look like? They don't care. And this idea of us representing Jesus Christ and all that we do and say doesn't carry much weight. And so these little follies that we do in verse 1 or the sinner destroying much good, it doesn't really bother us. But wait a second. It's a great honor and a great responsibility to represent Christ in our actions and what we do, not only publicly but also privately. All of us are involved in some type of ministry in some way or another. So therefore, we're all representing God in what we do. We have to take a look at ourselves and say, okay, are those little follies of verse 1 really causing issues? A lot of times we don't think they are because we've become desensitized to our own sin. But God says, no, those little follies will destroy your witness and your testimony. It truly will. So what do we do? Well, verse 2, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. In the Bible, right always represents strength, and left always represents weakness. What he's saying here is it's your choice. Your choice to decide to go in strength, or it's your choice to go in weakness. What are you going to choose? Every time where you're into a situation, you have that choice to make a good choice that takes you further in your walk with the Lord, represents God in a glorifying way, or you can make a choice that is folly. Verse 1 again. You have that choice. Verse 3, even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom. And he shows everyone that he's a fool. You can tell someone's a fool by just watching their lifestyle and actions. This is that great quote by Abraham Lincoln. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. One of those great quotes there. You can just see people walking on that left side, the side of the fool. And what is a fool? From a biblical point of view, according to Proverbs, when we just got done doing our study in Proverbs, a fool is one that, first off, doesn't believe that there's a God. 
A fool is somebody who lets their emotions control them. A fool is somebody who does not listen to wisdom or words, and they walk on their own intellect. You know as well as I do, if you just sit back and watch somebody's lifestyle, verse 3, as they are walking along in life, you will find out that he or she is a fool by the choices they make, by the responses to situations. It's easy to tell. Time will reveal the fool. So what do we do about that? Let's just be honest. It frustrates us, doesn't it? Some of you work with fools. Some of you live with fools. Some of you married a fool. Some of you are sitting by fools right now. Fools are all around us. We live in a world of fools. Sometimes we're the fool. That's the truth. So what do we do about this? Well, sad part is, a lot of times when we're surrounded by foolishness, we give up. Verse 4, If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post. Reconciliation pacifies great offenses. We leave our post a lot, don't we? This is the one thing that you see in Christianity is there's not this diligence. There's not this endurance. When the going gets tough, we just quit. It's too tough. It's too difficult. We just stop where God says there's this word, and it's a word that we don't like to use a lot in the English language. It's endure. Are we enduring through this? A lot of times, though, verse 4, we leave our post instead of fighting. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's talk about this idea of endurance for a little bit. Staying in when it gets tough. Hebrews 12. You're going to be surrounded by foolishness with whatever you do. How do you respond to that? What's the Christian's response? What's the mature response to this? Hebrews chapter 12. As you're going to Hebrews chapter 12, there's just a couple of verses I want to throw at you here that are just continues this theme. Hebrews 12 is where you're going. But if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. 2 Timothy 2.3. 2 Timothy 2.3 says that we're supposed to endure hardships like a good soldier. 1 Corinthians 4.12. 1 Corinthians 4.12 saying, being persecuted, we endure that idea of endurance. We endure hardships. We're persecuted. We endure. We don't give up. But as Christians, why do we want to leave the post? Well, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we, are, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do you realize the Christian walk is always compared to this idea of a race. Racing, running, that's difficult. It takes effort. We have to endure through that. And what happens in verse 1, if you have sin in your life that ensnares you, it weighs you down. What a great picture here. This idea of trying to run a race tangled in sin. Run a race tangled with this weight of sin. So what are you supposed to do? You cast it off. What did we just read in Ecclesiastes? A little folly. A little folly. will destroy a lot. One sin, that's that weight that entangles you, that tears you down and brings you down. God says, cast that off and run with endurance. But he doesn't just tell us, he gives us the example. Look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, there's that word again, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, God says, I want you to do it, verse 1, but I'm not just going to leave you blank on it, verse 2. Christ set the example before you. Christ was surrounded by fools. He was. So much so to the point that in the Gospels, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Oh, worthless and perverse generation, how much longer shall I bear with you? That's a God of love throwing his hands up in the air saying, How much more? He was surrounded by fools. He's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified on the cross. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. That's fools. 
Once again, you may work with them, you may live with them, you may be near them. You're going to be around them. What do you do? Well, we endure. We don't leave the post. Now, problem is after the end of verse 2, a lot of us sit there and say, yeah, okay, that was Christ. But Christ set the example for us. Look at verse 3. For consider him, think about him, who endured, there's that word again, such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Some of you sitting here today are weary and discouraged in your souls. You are. You're, you're, you're not enduring. You're ready to give up. You're tired. You're tired emotionally. You're tired spiritually. You're tired physically. You're weary and discouraged in your souls. Why? Because we're not enduring. I don't mean that as an insult. I'm saying that's what happens. We get tired of it. We want to be done. So what do we want to do? Ecclesiastes 10.4. I want to leave my post. I just want to quit. I just want to be done, Lord. I, I'm tired of this, and I just want to be done. And so I see this weary and discouraged thing in verse 3, and it's, I'm there. Now let's just be honest for a second. People come into my office a lot, and one of the first things they say is, well, you know what's going on? And their response is, I'm tired. Hey, tell me why you're tired. I'm tired physically. I'm tired emotionally. I'm tired spiritually. I'm just tired. They're weary and discouraged. Now, not for everybody. I'm not saying this for everybody, but for some. I say, well, how are you doing spiritually? Not good. I'm not having a good prayer life. I'm just not in the Word. I don't have that heart of worship. I'm just not serving. I'm not. Well, do you know what the result of not being spiritually strong is? You're going to be weary and discouraged. So therefore, when you're worried, weary and discouraged, you're going to want to leave your post, and you're not going to endure. You're going to want to give up. Life is tough. Life is very tough. So verse 3, though, we stop and we look at this verse, and we say, but still, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how bad my job is, how bad my life is, how bad my health is. You don't know. Look at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Let's just be honest and blunt for a second. How many of you have reached that point of bloodshed and fighting for the Lord? I don't think any of us here have. How many of you are going to go into work tomorrow and it's such a stressful situation that your life is on the line? How many of you are going to go home to a family situation today that is so difficult that there's going to be bloodshed? How many of you are facing that thing that is going to be so overwhelming that there's bloodshed? The truth of the matter is we're, we're not facing that. Where Christ actually did face that. Really what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, highly paraphrased, he's saying, buck up. He says, endure, verse 1. Endure, verse 2. Endure, verse 3. Verse 4. You haven't fought to the point of bloodshed yet. Now the problem is we have this Christianity today that is very um, cotton candy-ish. The truth of the matter is God says you are going to face difficult times. You are going to be surrounded by fools. You're going to have good days and bad days. He says, but are you going to endure through them, through the strength that God gives you? We just talked about on Wednesday the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1. And we said whatever trial you're facing, God says I will give you enough comfort and strength to get through whatever situation you're facing. He goes, you just do you believe it or do you not believe it? See, you have to decide right now in Ecclesiastes, do we understand this idea of enduring and resisting in God's strength? Or back to Ecclesiastes 10.4, do we leave our post? Do we stop and say, too much, I can't? Because the truth of the matter is you can't, I can't only through God that we can. So let's build on this. Because this diligence is there, but the truth of the matter is it's tough. Look at verse 5 of Ecclesiastes 10. There's an evil I've seen under the sun, as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. I've seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. He comes out and says, wait a second, look at this. It is tough. Verse 5, I, I see people in leadership that shouldn't be in leadership. I see things where there's supposed to be wisdom, but verse 6, there's folly. Now, does that not describe maybe where you work? Does that not maybe describe your house? 
Your family, your people, does that not describe everything? This idea of it is a screwed up world, Lord. There's folly. Folly there where there's supposed to be wisdom. There's error where there's supposed to be strength. This is where I live. This is where I work. God says, I know. He goes, stay at your post and endure. Endure. Because he says what happens is it all comes around. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. The truth of the matter is, if you live your life in foolishness, verse 8 and 9, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. You're going to fall into the pit. You're going to get bit by the serpent. You're going to get hurt by the wood. You're going to get hurt. If you live your life in foolishness, you're going to get hurt. Those people that are living their lives in foolishness, not according to the Bible, not according to God's standards, it's going to come back to bite them. It is. Now, what do we do when that happens? Let's be honest, some of us rejoice, don't we? Yeah, told you. Isn't there an element? Now, now, you guys won't admit it because you guys are still trying to be perfect. I'm a sinner, I'll admit it. Sometimes there's this element of, oh yeah, finally. But what did we talk about just a couple weeks ago in Ecclesiastes? God says, I have no joy in the death of the wicked. God says that he's patient, wishing that none should perish. God does not have joy in seeing people be hurt. He wants us to live that good, godly life. The problem is we look at verses 8 and 9, we sometimes say, yeah, fall in the pit, get bit by the snake. This is the consequences of your actions. And the truth of the matter is those are the consequences of their actions. Actions do have consequences. That is the truth of it. And so therefore, verses 8 and 9, we do realize the person that walks in foolishness, it will eventually come back to get them. It will. Now, Christianity is we love you enough to want to correct you. We love you enough to admonish you. We love you enough to step in and say, I don't want to see that happen to you. Because if I see that happen to you, that hurts me because I care for you. We don't want to see the person fall into the pit, bit by the snake, etc. in verses 8 and 9. We want to see them be made right in the grace of God. Wisdom knows this. Verse 10. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then you must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. See, here's the question that comes up. Taking all this now we've talked about, this idea of folly and sin hurting our lives and in realizing we're surrounded by foolishness, how are we going to respond to that? Some of your responses is verse 10. The axe is dull, so you're going to use more strength. We talked about this Wednesday. The eyes. I'm going to fix this marriage. I'm going to get through work tomorrow. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to let it bother me anymore. That's a lot of I in there. And what happens is you have a dull axe, and instead of using wisdom to fix the situation, you just swing the axe harder. God says, why are you doing that? Because you can do it. You can fix it. You can handle it. You can bear this. No, you can't. And by you trying to do this, by you trying to handle this on your own, you're swinging a dull axe that's not sharpened that wearies you out. Where God says at the end of verse 10, it's wisdom. Wisdom says, I don't want sin in my life because that's going to hurt the body of Christ and it's going to hurt me. One little folly brings shame. Wisdom says, I am going to be surrounded by fools, but you know what? I'm not going to leave my post. I'm going to endure. Wisdom says in verses 8 and 9, they're going to get hurt by this because that's the consequences of their actions. But I'm going to stay strong and focused on the Lord. I'm not going to swing the dull axe. I'm going to, in wisdom, sit and realize God has this and he'll take care of it. Verse 11. A serpent may bite when it's not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them. They do not even know how to go to the city. Foolishness wearies you. 
Did you catch that there? In verse 15, the labor of fools weary them. I know for me, when I'm walking in foolishness and not walking in wisdom of the Lord, I'm wearied. I'm tired physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I'm just wearied. I'm tired. I'm going back to verse 10. I'm the one with the dull axe, and I'm just trying to swing it myself. God says that's not wisdom, James. So I look at verses 11 through 15, and the truth of the matter is that's me sometimes. I'm the serpent that's being doing the biting. I'm the lips of uh, foolishness that's getting swallowed up in my words. I'm the one with foolish talk in verse 13 with raving madness. I'm the one multiplying my words. When I am walking in foolishness, verses 11 through 15, what am I really doing? I am wearying myself out. People come in. I'm tired. Well, if you're walking in foolishness, that's going to tire you out. Your life is going to wear you down and out because you're not walking according to the Lord. Does that mean when you walk according to the Lord, you're never going to get tired? Of course not. But you're not going to be tired by your own actions. See, verses 11 through 15, we cause a lot of damage to ourselves swinging that dull axe using our strength where God says, that's foolishness. That's foolishness to wear yourself out. And you know what happens? When you're once again walking in foolishness, you are going to get bit by the snake, verse 11. Your words are going to swallow you up, verse 12. Your talk is going to be raving madness, verse 13. And you know what, verse 14? You're not going to listen to anybody. That's the truth. And the result of that is verse 15. You're wearied. It's not worth it to walk. It is not worth it to walk in that foolishness. Because God says that comes back to hurt you. And what happens when you walk in foolishness? Jump ahead to verse 18. Because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. Let's just be honest. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, if you're born again and saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. What's the building look like? Is your spiritual walk decaying, as it says right there in uh, verse 18? Verse 18, is your spiritual house leaking? How how's your spiritual house look? Is it decaying and leaking? Well, the Bible says it's because of laziness. Verse 18, there's not an endurance there going on. Now, some of you may say, well, my spiritual house is leaking, not because of me, but because of the situations I'm facing in life. Well, let me tell you this. You remember the story of the parable, I should say, where Christ told the story of the man that built his house on the sand the man that built his house on the rock. The man that built his house on the sand, the storm hit, and what happened to his house? It all came tumbling down. We all remember the song. We forget, though, in that parable, the same storm that knocked down the foolish man's house on the sand, that same storm hit the wise man's house on the rock. The same storm. See, the problem is you think as a Christian, I think as a Christian, I'm walking in wisdom. I'm not walking in foolishness. I'm not allowing little folly to bring me down. I'm not leaving my post, but yet why is the storm still hitting me? Because the same storms that hit non-believers are the same storms that hit believers. That's just what happens. The question comes up, though, is what's your foundation? If your foundation is built on foolishness, not on the will of God, verse 18, your building will decay and your house will leak. And what will happen, verse 15, you will be weary. And that is what happens to us spiritually when our eyes are not on the Lord. We're not enduring like we're supposed to. The storms of life are going to hit you. You're going to get sick. You're going to have bad days at work. All these things are going to hit you. It's just a fact. The question comes up, are you going to walk in wisdom or are you going to walk in foolishness of the dull axe and just keep swinging your way through life and wear yourself out? You have to stop and ask yourself that because it's not worth it. It's not worth it in any way whatsoever. Now, using that as a foundation point, a couple quick things here. It's going to actually change a little bit. We're going to still use this idea of wisdom and foolishness, but there's a couple quick points we have to throw out here. Look at verse 19 real quick. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, 
But money answers everything. Didn't know that verse was in the Bible, did you? Money answers everything. How many of you are underlining that verse right now? <laughs> that is going to go on your fridge. See, you have to remember... And how many times have we said this in Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of a man going backwards and not forwards in his walk with the Lord. It's written from a man of the perspective of that he is looking at it through the emotion, through the depression, the discouragement of the world. And so from his perspective, money answers everything. Boy, don't you know people that have that same mindset? Money answers everything. Well, the problem is we know from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon did have everything. And he came back in Ecclesiastes 2 and it said, money didn't bring him happiness. There's a great quote on this. Money can't buy happiness. It can make you awfully comfortable when you're being miserable. And that's the mindset that we have. And you know, our world is revolved around money. Getting the bigger raise at work, and getting the bigger toys, the whatever. It's revolved around money. And even if you try to live as a Christian in this world and you don't want your life to be revolved around money, it still happens. You're going to get bills in the mail that have to be paid. It revolves around money. You're going to have mortgages that come due. It revolves around money. As much as you try to step back from money, it always comes back to money. So does money answer everything? Of course not. You and I both know that. But yet, that's that perspective of the world. And I've seen it. You've seen it. The better job, the more money. This will bring contentment. This will bring peace. This will bring stability. No. Christ brings contentment, Christ brings peace, Christ brings stability. That's what happens. Well, now, see, as Christians, I hate to say this, but sometimes we get that same mindset too. Now, we don't want to be rich, no. But, you know, Lord, a little bit more here or there, that would really be nice. Maybe it really would be nice. I don't know your financial situation. But the truth of the matter is we do not believe and we know that money does not answer everything. But you know what? Ministries have taken little verses like this and they've built that. They've built foundations off this idea of money. Now, you may not think that, but yet we take this same concept when it comes to money and we do other things with it, don't we? Let's just be honest. Haven't you seen ministries that say if you just uh, give X amount, plant this seed gift, then this is going to happen? Man, I didn't know you could buy God. Don't you think that sometimes? That's the way it comes across. Well, that's not what they're saying. That's sure the way it comes across. This idea that we have of, well, you know what, I'll, I'll give an extra couple hundred bucks this week, and then therefore God is going to hear my prayers better. I'm going to give a little bit more this week in the offering plate, and therefore the Lord is going to answer? No. Well, we don't think that with money, but yet what about other things in life? Lord, i got a really big day tomorrow, so I'm going to read two chapters tonight, and I'm going to pray for 20 minutes instead of 10. And therefore, tomorrow is going to go better. No, it's not. We think this, so we think we can buy this type of thing off. Lord, I know things are really tough right now, so you know, once you fix this situation in my life, I promise you I'll be at church every single Sunday. I will read more, I will pray more, and whatever they need help serving, I will serve. God doesn't cut deals. You, you read, you pray, you serve out of love, not legalism, because you choose to, you want to go deeper. But yet we have this mindset, if I do X, God has to do Y. It doesn't work that way, guys. And you know what? Be thankful it doesn't work that way. Be thankful for that because if it worked that way, it becomes this legalism that is on you. And legalism is never joy. I shared this story at the first service, and I'll share it again. I can remember years ago, and um, I can remember years ago that on a message out here, uh, Pastor Krager told the story of that um, every now and then when, when phone people would call to do salesmen, et cetera, whatever, you get on the phone, that he would listen to them and talk to them and answer their questions. But then at the end, he would say, hey, since I gave you my time, would you give me your time? And then he would then say to them, uh, have you know, witnessed to him, accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jim, do you still do that sometimes? Yep, see? And, that, and that's, that's why you were a better pastor than me, because I heard him teach that. And so the next time a salesman called at my house, I did the same thing. 
because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. I'm not called to do that. <laughs> it didn't go real well. But I had this mindset that that's what has to happen and that's what has to be. And what happens is you put this legalism on yourself of, well, you know what? That's where God's calling him. Well, that must be where God's calling me. It doesn't work that way. And I didn't have the joy about it. I almost was like, oh, for crying out loud, you're a salesman? Fine. Do you love Jesus? I just need to know. Do you love Jesus? <laughs> And it became this legalism of, of having to, because if I don't do it, God's not happy with me. And if God's not happy with me, well, then he's not going to answer my prayers. And, oh, man, God just loves you. I mean, he just loves you. And money does not answer everything. It doesn't. But from the perspective of the world, money answers everything. I just read an article where they were talking about what does it mean to be rich? So they interviewed people that I believe had net assets of more than a million dollars. And they came to the conclusion by this survey that rich was seven million. You had to have seven million to be considered rich. Now, isn't that just the world's perspective on things? Money answers everything. And God says, no, that's the foolish response. That's the dull acts response. That's the folly response. That's not what it is. What happens, though? When we allow ourselves to be around fools, we see people swinging the dull axe, trying to take care of it themselves. We see the people letting little folly become into their lives, and that sin destroys much. Let's just be honest. It bothers us. So what do we do? Verse 20, do not curse the king. Even in your thought, do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Now that's a good verse to underline. It's amazing how when we get frustrated and upset, we start saying things we shouldn't say, we say things to people we shouldn't say, and it gets us in trouble. We have to watch our words. Wisdom is watching what you say, when you say, how you say it, and to who you say it. That's wisdom. Anything less than that is going to get you in trouble. Well, I'm just telling so-and-so. Well, then so-and-so just tells so-and-so, and the next thing you know, it's all over the place. Verse 20, there are the little birds that carry the news around. It is. We have to be careful about that. Wisdom says, watch what you do. Watch what you say. Wisdom tells us, verse 19, money doesn't answer everything. So what is the perspective on money and giving, etc.? Look at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. That's a strange little verse. But that's a true verse. You get some time. Next sunny day, go down to uh, Dash the Reservoir or something like that. Take some bread, throw it in the water, and what happens? The, water, the bread goes out. After a while, what happens to the bread? It comes right back. It's a fascinating little thing. This is what it's talking about here in verse 1. When you give, and I'm not even just talking financially. Tithing is obviously a biblical concept. But when you give of your money, of your resources, of your finances, of your energy, God says you'll be blessed by that. Now, go back to what we just talked about. You don't give to get. Lord, I'm giving you a couple hundred bucks now because i got some big bills coming up next month, so I know that this is going to then bring more. No, no, that's not what we're saying. You don't give to get. You give because that's the biblical response. See, the world's response is verse 19. Money answers everything. The biblical response is verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters. Don't cling to it. If you're taking notes, just write down these two verses. Great verses here. Acts 20, verse 35. Acts 20, verse 35. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. 2 Corinthians 9.7, 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And once again, it's not just the monetary. It's your time. It's your energy. It's your resources. It's your heart. Are you a giving person of what you have in your life? And you give because the Lord says, I set the ultimate example of giving my life on the cross. 
How simple is it for us to give of our time, energy, and resources? And verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 11, it comes back. My goodness, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Verse 2, give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. Give. I've shared this with you numerous times before. When somebody is going through a tough time, and and that discouragement and depression is getting the best of them, one of the first things I ask them, like to ask them, I should say, is, is where are you giving? Where are you serving? Because what happens is when you give and serve, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 11, it comes back. Now the truth of the matter is when someone's going through a hard time, the last thing they're thinking about is giving other time, energy, and resources. I'm in such a tough time right now. I'm in such a depressed state. How could I ever go help anybody or whatever? See, that's the point of giving, is when you go give of your time, energy, and resources, let's just be honest, it takes your eyes off yourself. And so therefore, you're not thinking about you. You're actually thinking about helping somebody else. What good does it do to sit home and just do the woe is me My life is falling apart. My life is miserable. No, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 11. Go throw some bread on the water. You'll be blessed. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. Verse 2, go serve. It will be worth it. It gets your eyes and heart off of you and onto something else. Just like when Christ hung on the cross, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking of others. If anybody had a moment to be selfish in life, it would have to be Jesus on the cross. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So what we sit here and we say is, okay, I want to serve. We hear a message like this. I want to do something. I want to get involved. But what? Life's really busy right now. Um, you know, right now, just uh, mentally, it's just a tough time. Physically, it's a tough time. There's, there's reasons. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. If a tree falls to the south or the north, in that place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. I'm telling you right now, I had a hard time with verses 3 and 4. I kept looking at verse 3, and I kept thinking, it's like that dumb joke, if a tree falls in the forest, it doesn't make a sound. And I kept thinking, Lord, what are you trying to say here? So when you stop and you look at this, the answer is found in verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, he who regards the clouds will not reap. Some people don't serve because they're waiting for the perfect opportunity. It's, it's the example they're giving in verse 3. is, I want to go plant. Ah, it looks like it could rain. I should probably wait a little bit. Or, you know what, I'm going to go put a garden in. Well, I don't want a tree to fall on it. So what happens is, I want to do stuff. I want to serve. I want things to be different, Lord. Fill in the blank, whatever it is. But, but right now is not a good time. I'm telling you right now, there's never a good time to serve. We're selfish people. It's not a good time. And, and we have said numerous times out here, everybody is a minister, the Bible says. Everybody has a ministry. So therefore, with that mindset, what are you doing to further the kingdom? I'll, I'll do some stuff. And I'm not talking to serve in the back or sign up for the cleaning ministry. But if you feel led, we do need help in the back, and the cleaning ministry list is to my right. But the point is, the, is just serving that heart of, Lord, where can I be used for the kingdom? Not because God needs me, but I want to serve. And if you're constantly waiting for the perfect opportunity, it's, it's never going to happen. Ministry is messy. Christianity is messy. It just doesn't work sometimes. God still says, will you serve? I shared this story with you before, and I don't mean to be repetitious on this point, but I knew a guy, God love him, good guy, good heart, had a true, honest-to-goodness heart to want to see people get saved in Christ. And he felt led to start up a Bible study, but as you remember the story, he just kept waiting for the perfect opportunity and time. He just kept waiting and waiting, and he would, he would prepare messages, have me look at them, and and we'd talk about this. We'd pray about it. And I finally just reached a point of saying, to him, hey, just, just pick a date and start. You're prayed up. You're ready to just pick a date. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for that. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, there's wisdom in waiting and praying and seeking the Lord. 
But there's also an understanding. Psalm 119 says, it's time for you to act, O Lord. Sometimes you've got to jump. Now, I've seen extremes. I've seen Christians, uh, they just run up the hill. I mean, there's no praying, no seeking God, what's God's will? Oh, I'm just going to do it. Those people get themselves in trouble. I've also seen the other group of people that are waiting for the perfect opportunity to serve and minister. They're watching the clouds, they're watching the trees, and they never sow, verse 4. So since they never sow, sow verse 4, they never reap. There's a balance there where, Lord, I've prayed up, I've studied Psalm 119, it's time to act, God, I want to go do something, and I step out in faith and do it. I don't know what extreme you are. Maybe you're the type that needs to slow down a little bit and pray a little bit more before you do it. Maybe you're the type of person that needs to get up and go do it. Well, Ecclesiastes is saying is whatever excuse you have to keep yourself from serving, verses 3 and 4, it's really just an excuse. Okay, I hear this message and I hear what you're saying, James, but you don't understand my situation. Well, look at verse 5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning you sow your seed, in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. See, the problem is, verse 5, you're smarter than God. And so since you're smarter than God, he's saying serve, and you're saying, Lord, you don't know what I have going on in life right now. And God comes back in verse 5 and says, can you explain to me the wind? Can you explain to me how a baby grows in the womb? God says, you don't know the works of God who make everything. If God is leading you to do it, don't you think he's going to give you the time frame and the strength to fulfill it? God is never going to send you on a mission and not give you the tools to complete it. So, if there's something the Lord is calling you to do, to get involved with, to serve, to change, whatever, no more excuses, do it. Don't go back to verse 18 and have the laziness that decays your building and makes your house leak. Don't go back to being the fool of verses 8 through 15 and your words and your life get you into trouble. Don't be the person with the dull axe that's just swinging the axe. And don't be the person that has a little sin in their life, but it's really not a big deal. Because a little sin will cause a lot of damage. God says, I know better than you, verse 5, get out there and plant seeds. How do you plant seeds? Verse 6, you plant seeds in the morning, plant seeds in the evening. But what does that mean? Does that mean every morning you need to be sharing the gospel with somebody? Every evening you need to be sharing the gospel with somebody? It just means that you're available to plant when God says plant. I'll just give an example. This is for me, for my life. Anytime I, I go through the checkout, at any type of grocery store, Walmart, whatever, I always want to make eye contact with the guy or gal running the checkout. I always want to tell them good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, and ask them how they are doing. That's, that's planting a seed for me. And if the Lord opens a door where it can be a bigger conversation, then God open that door and we'll go with it. But if not, I'm throwing a seed out there to make a contact with somebody and just see where God goes with it. Same thing with the waiter. Same thing with the waitress. I'm going to make contact with them and not just say, hey, here's my order. Hey, check out the goods there. No. How are you doing today? How's it going? That's a planting a seed for me. And if God opens a door, I'm going to take it and I'm going to go with it. Now, does it work sometimes? Yeah. There's also a lot of seeds I've never seen a bit of fruit from in any way whatsoever. None. And if somebody says they're having a rough day, I'll say, hey, I'll pray for you. I'm not going to do hardcore evangelism unless the Lord opens it. Oh, you're having a rough day. It's because you're going to hell. That's why you're having a rough day. <laughs> no, I mean, if God opens a door, I'll go with it. But you're having a rough day, well, I'll pray for you. I'm going to plant a seed, and I'll see what happens there. But you know, the thing is, so often, I don't know what's going to happen. Look at the end of verse 6. You do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I don't know. Just like, to be quite honest, there's people here listening to this message today. Some of you aren't even getting anything out of it. I can't worry about that. 
I plant the seeds, verse 6. Same thing with worship. I can't make people worship. You plant the seeds of preparing the song, they have to want it. Just like we offer Bible studies during the week. We offer discipleship. We offer baptism. We offer all this. You take the seed if you want it. It's your choice. I don't know what's going to prosper or not. I don't know. I just have to be faithful in verse 6 to sow seed in the morning, sow seed in the evening. I don't know what's going to prosper. And I just say, Lord, it is yours. And I have to trust you. The problem is with some of us, we plant seeds and we want to see instantaneous growth. Guys, it doesn't work that way. And you know that. Corn and beans are going to go in here in the next couple months. You guys are going to be planting gardens in a little bit. Everybody knows you plant the seed, the water, you cultivate, you do all that stuff, and sometimes it doesn't grow. But you just have to be faithful, verse 6, to do it. Why don't we do that? Why don't we plant the seeds? Because of verses 7 and 8. Truly the light is sweet and is pleasant to the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Finally, we get back to depressing, discouraging Solomon. We've gone almost a whole lesson without him doing the woe is me stuff. Verse 8. Let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. That's good old Solomon in Ecclesiastes. My life is dark. My life is miserable. My life is the worst life of everybody in the world. No one else has it as bad as me. You have good days, you have bad days. Isn't that what verses 7 and 8 are saying? Some days, verse 7, the light is sweet. It's pleasant to the eyes. Some days it's sunny. Verse 8, some days it's not. You catch that? You're going to go to work tomorrow. Some days you have verse 7 days. Some days you have verse 8 days. You're going to go home today. Some days you have verse 7 days at home. Some days you have verse 8 days at home. Every day is going to be different. There's days of lightness. There's days of darkness. What are you going to do in those dark days? Are you going to go to Solomon and go to verse 8 and say, all is vanity, it's all meaningless, it's all pointless, it doesn't matter? No. That's what the fool does. Wisdom says, Lord, I realize there's good days, I realize there's bad days, but no matter what day I am, I go back to verse 6 and I plant the seeds. Some of my verse 8 days of darkness have been the most fruitful days of ministry. Those messages where I didn't think it clicked. Those counseling sessions where I thought it didn't go good. Those telephone calls where I thought, oh, how horrible was that, the advice I gave. Days of darkness, but the next thing you know, seeds are planted. I've also had verse 7 days where I thought the message totally clicked. I thought everything was said perfectly. I thought it all worked out wonderful. No, no fruit came out of that. You're just responsible to verse 6 to plant. And when the good days come in verse 7, it's pleasant. Enjoy it. What a blessing. When the bad days come in verse 8, wow. Don't let the darkness get the best of you. God is bigger than that darkness. There is some truth in verse 8. You will have dark days. Right now, you may be sitting here and you're in a verse 7 day. It's a good day. You feel good. Family's healthy. You're enjoying things. It's verse 7. You may be sitting here today and it's verse 8. It's just darkness. Life is falling apart. Everything's falling apart. I don't know where you're at, but I do know this. Verse 6, you still need to plant sow and seeds. You do. Blessings will come out of that. I do know that verse 11, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 11, you still need to cast the bread out because God says you will be blessed by that. It's your choice of what you're going to do. No one can make you jump from verse 8 to verse 7. If you want to live in that discouragement, nobody can do anything to change that. There are dark days. If you've lost a loved one, that's a dark time. If you got that bad diagnosis at the doctor, that's a dark time. If the family is, is hurting and sick, that's a dark time. But the question comes up of, I understand there's going to be dark days of verse 8, but we don't want to plant our tent there. We don't want to live in verse 8. Lord, verse 7, 
Let's just try to see the good in what's going on, the pleasantness that you're moving, you're working. And once again, no matter what happens, I'm going to go back to verse 6. I'm going to plant seeds, Lord, because that's what you've called me to do and that's what you've asked me to do. This is why we wanted to finish with communion today. Because communion is a great time to stop and go to the Lord and say, Okay, God, things are clicking. Things are good. I want to take communion because it's a blessing.